I smell the pumpkin spice in the air. Welcome to another episode of True Crime on Easy Street, the post Fall Festival edition. You could have smelled it in the air yesterday if you had been at the Fall Festival, but you were not. Well, today's Wednesday, so you just confused everybody. But welcome. Happy Wednesday, everybody. <laughs> My name is Kelly Turner. I am not a doctor. My name is Scott Wright. I am a mediocre journalist. And I'm Katie Givens, and I'm not a lawyer. And Sunday, nope, Saturday, sorry, not Sunday. Saturday was the Fall Festival in which Katie and Scott and Shane set up the table. And not Kelly. Not Kelly. I didn't say Kelly. Set up the table. They sold chances to win a set of beats. Mm -hmm. They had some Halloween candy. They sold some t-shirts. They had a grand old time and it was a success. Was it not, guys? It was. We had a great time. You guys sent me some great pictures. It actually was a lot of fun. It was more fun than I thought it was going to be, especially since Katie brought her husband with her. He did a great job. No, he didn't. He complained the whole fucking time. He sent some great pictures to me. You guys look like a couple of experts. He might have sent one picture, and that was his entire contribution. He sent two. Let me just, just for the record. Well, that's twice as much work as I thought he He did. He sent two. And then I, Katie sent another picture that had Shane sitting behind the table and Jake Graves, who's been on our show before, Uh sitting behind the table. And I guess you two, you got your seats stolen and so you were having to stand. Jake sat in my chair for like 45 minutes and I just had to stand there like an (laughs) idiot. And Shane was like, Jake doesn't even have anything to do with this either. I said, he has been on the show. You would know that if you listened. Mm, Oh. Burn. (laughs) So yeah. So, all right. So we sold some chances. We sold some shirts. We had a wonderful table. You guys did. Mm. You guys did all of this. I'm through giving you down the road for not being there. You okay. had a good reason for not being there. So let's just, I won't give you another hard we time. Had a, we had a wonderful time at the University of Montevallo for our college visit. It's a lovely place. That is awesome. And it was great weather. The weather was perfect. Chamber of Commerce weather yesterday. Yes, it was. It I was, mean, Saturday. It was fantastic. Yeah. All right. So without further ado. Too late for that. We are going to draw Ooh, yes. for the winner of the beats. What you bought chances for at the table on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're drawing now to see who the lucky person is. We need a drum roll. All right. Let's do this. Asa Sinclair. Yay! Wait a minute. I know her. Uh, well, I, I think I met her yesterday, now, but she is she is a, a relative of people that we know. Yes. Kelly, clean that up. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay. Do a much better job than I just did. Asa is the same age as uh, my daughter, Katie, and uh, Katie's stepson, Colin. Yes. And she took advantage of our 10 chances for $5 option. So she had yeah, a lot of, her. She, her name was in there several times, so she had a good chance to Good win. for her. Yeah, That's awesome. That is a $150 value. Yes, it is. And they're beautiful. They're this uh, beautiful gray color. They're wireless. They've got the little charging case with them. Uh, are so. they gray? I think I told everyone they were the white. No, they're gray. Okay. Uh, I don't think anyone asked. No. Did they ask you? No one asked me what color they were. I was trying to bullshit my way through that, Katie. Thanks for calling <laughs> me out on it. Uh-uh. Well, congratulations to Asa Sinclair. We will be in touch with you very shortly after this episode drops to make sure that you collect your prize. Thank you for supporting us, and congratulations again. Congrats. Why is everybody looking at me? Are you going to say congratulations? Oh, certainly. Congratulations. All right. There, there we go. go. Okay. Sorry. So this week... After Fall Festival, Hangover has cleared, right? 
because I did get another photo of you guys at the bar after the fall festival. Well, we might have left the fall festival a little bit earlier than everyone else, but there was a bar right across the street. The SEC games kicked off at 11 o'clock. Shane's face was the color of a fire truck, so it was time to do something else. And oh, why yes. Why was that? Who forgot the tent, Scott? Uh, let's move on. <laughs> Scott's supposed tent was right across the road. He would not go get it. Are you kidding me? I don't know where it is. <laughs> so he says. It's, There's the truth. It's somewhere in storage. There's the truth. All right. Okay. All right. So the fall festival is over. Check that off the box. Now we move into the the month of October. We're barreling down the road towards Halloween. Spooky are you gonna, season are you is tell here. Everybody, what we're going to do for Halloween? Are we going to have anything special that we want to mention now? Should we just cut that whole thing? We're not going to mention anything. Fine. All right. So, (laughs) Scott is in the big chair this week and the next week to come. Yep. He has been doing research on this particular case for about a month now. Uh, Is that accurate? Yes. About a month? Yes. I hate this guy. I'm sure you do. So, Scott... Take it away. Okay. Uh, So, speaking of research, before I get started, I have a shout out today. Okay. Uh, Yesterday, uh, Saturday, four days ago, as you listen in your car on your way to work this morning, Mm -hmm. my number one research assistant had a birthday. Oh. He turned 14. I cooked iron skillet fillets for he and I. He is named after my favorite fictional law enforcement character of all time. Happy birthday, Buford T. Justice. And that is your dog. That is my 10-pound Yorkie. Who <laughs> Happy birthday, Buford T. Yeah. We had a great time. Went home early, watched the ball games, got to sleep early so that I could be here on time today, which is a miracle in and of itself. Yeah. You were on time. I was not. I wasn't going to mention that, but thank you. <laughs> Okay, so before we get into this episode, we're going to talk about the Golden State Killer, if you did not read the title. (laughs) But let's get one thing out of the way right now. You guys ready? All together on three. One, two, three. Joseph Joseph James James D'Angelo. I forgot what name we were saying. (laughs) That's okay. Leave it in. That's hilarious. Because it's not going to be funny for much longer. So no, let's no, get no, no, one no. last laugh in because right, this right. one's bad. Absolutely. This this is a terrifying case. This man terrorized the state of California for decades. Uh, for 12 years. Oh, not he, multiple decades. Well, the, the, the crimes themselves took place over a 12-year period, but it was 44 years yeah. before they slapped cuffs on gotcha. Joseph James D'Angelo. All right. Well, let's get to it. So we said his name. We got it out of the way. And here's why we did that. First of all, we don't want to insult the intelligence of our listeners by keeping the identity of the Golden State Killer a secret simply for dramatic purposes. Right. Although that, although that identity problem for 44 years, like we said, was and remains a very significant part of this story. Mm-hmm. D'Angelo went on this dozen-year-long crime spree beginning in 1974 within just weeks of being hired as a police officer. 44 years passed before his brothers in blue shackled him with handcuffs in his front yard in Sacramento on April the 24th, 2018. Between his arrest and the time he confessed to his crimes in a court proceeding two years later in March of 2020, Joseph James D'Angelo was typically referred to as the alleged Golden State Killer. Alleged. Not anymore. We are dropping alleged. Yes, he is the Golden State D'Angelo did these crimes. Every one of them, he admitted to it in court. We are naming names today, and there's only one name. It is Joseph James D'Angelo. 
Last things first. As we said, Joseph D'Angelo did not become known as the Golden State Killer until long after his string of burglaries, rapes, and murders had ended. The late crime blogger and amateur sleuth Michelle McNamara coined that phrase, the Golden State Killer, in 2013 when she became interested in the case and began writing about it. And by the way, I highly recommend her 2018 book titled I'll Be Gone in the Dark. There's also an HBO documentary by the same title. Both terrific if you want to learn more about this. I've seen the documentary. The documentary is excellent. I've not read the book, but I have heard wonderful things. Both well done. So before McNamara tagged him the Golden State Killer, D'Angelo had been known for a time as the original Night Stalker. Previous to that moniker, which was coined to separate him from Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker who terrorized California in 84 and 85, D'Angelo became known to local law enforcement and local media as the East Area Rapist. He got that nickname in 1976. I know, I'm confused too right now. So for the sake of simplicity, East Area Rapist is the nickname we will use today. Okay. But not before I try to confuse you one last time. When D'Angelo began committing burglaries in 1974 in the city of Visalia, but before he progressed to sexual assault, cops in Central California called him the Visalia Ransacker. Okay. So he's been known by several different names. Each of these monikers referenced D'Angelo's crime of choice at the time. And each time he's getting more severe. Yes. it's It's a gradual step up a criminal ladder of... Yes progression from from bad to worse Mm. to much much worse so whatever we call him just remember the name that matters is joseph james d'angelo but tonight it's going to be east area rapist but beginning in 1974 in april a series of around 120 home intrusions began in visalia california typically operating on weekends d'angelo would break into unoccupied homes and steal really very little of value he sold a piggy bank once loose cash, and on at least one occasion, he stole a handgun. It seemed that the theft of property was not his primary motivation. It was fright. It was terror. Yes, he enjoyed terrorizing his victims. That was the primary motivation. D'Angelo liked to toss the entire house. He pulled drawers from the kitchen cabinets and bedroom dressers and dumped everything in the floor. Look at the crime photos. It's crazy. Now, that's just rude. Yes. I mean, closets emptied, clothes tossed around on the floor. Now think about that. 120 of those in two years, that averages out to about one a week in a very small geographic area in and around the city of Visalia. Never caught. It's a little more than one a week. Now, was... That's fright. That's what that is. That's just fright. Was D'Angelo a cop at the time? Yes. Okay, so this is probably how he was able to not be caught. It certainly was one of the reasons why he was able to avoid. And I remember back in the day, I don't remember in the 70s, I wasn't there, but but before this was solved, people were saying that was one of the theories that at at least at some point in time, this individual may have been a police officer. Yeah, there was a time when the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department, anybody who fit the basic description who was on the police force got investigated, Mm -hmm. just to be sure. Do you know if D'Angelo was ever investigated? I do not know that. Which, what was the basic description? Uh, 5'9", white male, early 20s, 170 pounds. Okay. That kind of thing. There was what police at the time called a sexual aspect to the burglaries, the ransackings. 
because one quirk D'Angelo exhibited during his time as the Visalia ransacker was to lay out women's underwear and lingerie in neat, orderly patterns. He would put them on the bed, on the mattress. He might lay them in a line down the hallway. Weirdo. So mm-hmm. something sexual is going on here. These odd proclivities satisfied D'Angelo for around two years until one night in September 1975 when he decided to kidnap a girl from her home. Her name was Beth Snelling. She was 16. D'Angelo broke into the house and started dragging her out the front door. Don't scream or I will shoot you, he said. And he waved a pistol in her face. She screamed, of course. I mean, who wouldn't? Mm -hmm. And her father came running from another room. D'Angelo ended up shooting the father twice, then kicked Beth in the face. Oh, my gosh. And disappeared into the darkness. That was the father. The handgun he used to shoot Claude Snelling dead was the same one he had taken a couple of weeks earlier from someone else's home. Yeah. One more thing to remember about this attempted kidnapping. Beth Snelling got a pretty good look at the Visalia ransacker, even though he was wearing a ski mask at the time. And we just talked about that a second ago, like Katie asked. Uh, Male in his 20s, medium build, 5'9", 165. He growled at her, she said, through clenched teeth. Yes, that was a big description. There was also, is this the point in time when we get a, a good look at, the, at his eye color? Because that was... Maybe. That was a very significant description of this guy. It does certainly turn out to be. They yes. are icy blue. Yeah. Icy blue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, now, three months pass, but the Visalia cops are still on high alert. In mid-December of 75... A cop on a stakeout in that very same neighborhood saw a man crouching behind a house Mm-mm. hidden in the bushes. Oh my gosh. He shouted, freeze, police, and gave chase on foot, but ended up getting shot at by the suspect. Now, the bullet missed the officer, but it did hit his flashlight. Immediately, dozens of cops are on the scene. They're trying to figure out how to find this guy before he gets away, but D'Angelo got away again. Mm. Gone in the dark. Mm-hmm. And that was the end of the line for the Visalia ransacker. Too much heat from the cops, maybe. Yeah. Small area. Yeah. But know this. One of the crimes Joseph D'Angelo pleaded guilty to in 2020 was the murder of Claude Snelling. So he has admitted. So that's murder number one? Yep. That's one of them. hmm So D'Angelo's ransacking days are over. The as-yet-unnamed East Area Rapist, though, was about to strike for the first time. The details of his very first attack on a 23-year-old woman living alone would become eerily familiar to police in and around the east side of Sacramento County over the next three years. Again, medium-sized, 5'9", 170 pounds, early 20s, white guy. He was always holding a weapon in one hand, usually a knife or a gun, a flashlight in the other. He was wearing a ski mask, either tennis shoes or military boots, and no pants. He was totally Winnie the Pooh in it. He's like, he's breaking into these homes with a shirt, boots, and weapons. Like, no, absolutely. Yeah. I did not know this detail until Uh, this second. I don't know why, but. Here's another detail. And Scott, if you're going to, okay, I'll shut up. There's nothing. (laughs) There's literally, there's literally nothing. I don't think creepier than a. A man in a shirt, no pants. Like, just like bare assing it into your home through the window. That's not even, you think about climbing into a window with no pants on and boots and a shirt. Nope. That's not flattering. It's Mm -hmm. not a flattering look. And it's not safe. Well, no. First of all, but uh, that is bold. Yeah. 
Katie Givens hold my beer because he always had an erection and he always had a tiny little penis. It's very tiny. Small. Every to a woman, mm-hmm. they all say ridiculously small. Ridiculously like, small. Like made note of it. Yeah. It, that was one of the, the eye color. The what we just described as what he's wearing when he comes in and the penis size are always mentioned mm-hmm. with the survivors. Yeah, yes, that's right. No. And an odor, a sometimes terrible, yes, terrible sometimes no odor. Yeah, that was mm-hmm. something else. That sometimes he smelled like cologne. Sometimes he smelled like he hadn't had a bath in a week. Mm-hmm. Always the bad breath. Always bad breath, and always the clenched teeth that he's growling through perfect segue because that first night once again speaking through clenched teeth d'angelo threatened the woman she's terrified he ties her hands behind her back using shoelaces he has brought with him another common denominator in east area rapist attacks he ties her hands so tightly that when they finally when someone finally gets those uh shoelaces off her hands her hands are black Mm. from lack of circulation Mm. another typical uh, detail about this particular crime or series of crimes. Sometimes D'Angelo was in the house for hours taking breaks in between each sexual assault. He would go in empty drawers and throw clothes everywhere. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Sometimes he would eat food out of the kitchen. Yep. And during that first attack, he went into the kitchen and helped himself to food in the cabinets. He sat down at the table and had a beer from the refrigerator. Again, he's not wearing pants. He, he's wearing a shirt Can't. and boots. Yeah. No he, pants. He'd be disappointed if he came to my house. He'd be like, damn, I broke into the one house in this neighborhood that has no food. Empty <laughs> fridge. Empty <laughs> fridge at the Gibbons residence. I can verify that. Mm-hmm. Um, before he slipped a lock on the window to get inside that house, he had cut the phone line. And for weeks before the attack, D'Angelo had been using that same phone line to place hang-up calls every night to learn his victim's schedule. This, too, a common tale in D'Angelo's, uh, from D'Angelo's victims through the years. So back in the day, this was before cell phones. This was before caller ID. You could call someone's home from your landline even, hang up, and they don't know that you have called them. Yeah, this is before Star 69. Mm-hmm. This is, that was even predated yeah. caller ID and everything. Mm-hmm. So he could call. Was he, did you just say, was he calling from his home or from a, a pay phone or it whatever? Whatever he was calling from. He call, you answer, he hangs up. You don't know who it is. Now, Star 69 is where it would call that person back. It would ring, it would ring back. right back to the phone that it just But you like you. wouldn't know who it was unless they picked up. Until they up. picked up and identified themselves, okay. yes. Yeah. But prank so, calling. like you said before, caller ID. Yeah, prank calling used to be, you know, something that was done often. Mm-hmm. Not yeah, that when there, was, not when there that were no would, consequences. Yeah, not that I would know anything Whatever. about Whatever. I'm not buying that <laughs> As crap. a middle schooler. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Decades before the cops found the right man, before they found D'Angelo, the consistent modus operandi, we're going to call it MO for the rest of the night, uh, that's what gave D'Angelo away, at least in some law enforcement circles. Not all of the cops were smart, but the ones who were already strongly suspected that they were looking for one man. Just the MO was so consistent. Yeah, I could say that. Carol Daly, one of the detectives at the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department at the time, said that her superiors became convinced she was asking leading questions to the victims 
because they all told a strikingly similar story. They finally realized it wasn't her questions. It was the East Area Rapists' consistent MO. Yes. It's almost ritualistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, I mean, we see a lot of these killers that have, do kind of the same thing over and over, but usually there's some variation. Mm-hmm. And you know, if he's spending this amount of time in the home with these individuals, he knows their schedule. He knows there's no risk of someone coming home. Sure. He knows this. These attacks all happen at 2, 3, 4 a.m. Right. Uh, the quietest time of the night in any residential neighborhood. Yes. Uh, now, remember that all of this began in June of 76. The cops didn't know yet that they were dealing with a serial rapist. And back then, police departments didn't really cooperate with each other. No. So, as D'Angelo spread out into the east area of Sacramento County, into different areas, none of these communities, none of these police departments are sharing information with each other. And in part because of that, this series of attacks would eventually spread over a decade and cover 400 miles from Sacramento and Central California to Orange County down below Los Angeles, close to San Diego. That first sexual assault was piece number one in a puzzle that would take authorities four decades to put together. Four weeks after victim number one, D'Angelo struck for the second time two teenage sisters, ages 15 and 16. Same script, same MO. Attack number three came 40 days later in August 1976. Now, here's a bit of good news. You're going to like this one, Kelly. You've asked me about this already. This one goes bad for D'Angelo. Good. A what, woman, did he, what, did he jump on a splinter when he was crawling uh, through the window? If only. Yeah. A woman and her daughters, their ages 12 and 15, they're awakened at 3.30 a.m. by a man in a ski mask, naked from the waist down, outside of the house, trying to climb in one of the windows. He's trying to pry the screen off so he can get in. Before D'Angelo made his way into the house, though, the mother and both daughters got up, ran into the kitchen to call the police. And just like you mentioned a second ago, we're talking about a rotary dial phone, probably olive green, hanging on the wall in the kitchen with a 40-foot cord in the days before 911. Yeah. Oh, God. So they're having to dial. There's no 911 yet. Seven numbers. Seven numbers. When was 911 created? Uh, The first call ever 911 was an Alabama call. You guys remember when we talked about that a while back? The first ever 911 call took place in Alabama, but it was in the 80s before 911 was nationwide. I I did. Yeah. Uh, So D'Angelo eventually, he gets the window open while they're in the kitchen trying to dial all those numbers. He runs down the hallway into the kitchen and he shouts through clenched teeth, freeze. Hang up the phone or I'll kill you. Freeze. Don't forget he's a cop. Freeze. Uh He's a cop. Mm -hmm. He probably let that slip out, but he said freeze. But now mom's not done. She's not done fighting for her life or her daughter's lives. There's a struggle in the kitchen, and somehow the woman and both of her daughters get out of the house. They run to the nearest neighbor, and they call the police. But D'Angelo escapes in the confusion. Attack number four takes place a week after that. Same MO again. D'Angelo's script is always nearly identical, only changing as he learns on the job, so to speak. Attack number five is a month later. Cops are finally starting to figure out that they have a serial rapist in Sacramento County. The sheriff tries to keep a lid on the story, but by the ninth attack in late 1976, the community is in an uproar. Here's what happened. November 76, the Sacramento Bee. No mediocre journalists there. Mm. 
That's the local newspaper in Sacramento. It's the daily paper. It had the story and they refused to sit on it. So good for them. Good they, for them. They started telling stories about these attacks. By the middle of March of 1977, a few months later, the headline on the front page of the Sacramento Bee read, East Area Rapist Claims 15th Victim. That is a terrifying headline. Yes. And by that point, Sacramento County is in full-on panic mode. Yes. Hardware stores sell out of deadbolt locks. Gun sales went through the roof. The Sheriff's Department, the Sheriff's Department finally becomes proactive. They hold a series of community meetings to share what little information they have and offer tips on how to avoid becoming a victim. Are you ready for this? If you see a strange person in your neighborhood, call somebody. Lock your doors and windows. Police helicopters are flying around these neighborhoods in helicopters, shining spotlights into backyards and vacant lots. To this day, victim number five, Jane Carson Sandler, needs a moment every time she hears a helicopter. Bad memories. Mm. Before D'Angelo decided to stop raping and start killing, there were 31 sexual assaults in Sacramento County alone. In between those attacks, the East Area Rapist was also assaulting women in surrounding counties. By July of 79, the number was up to 50. 50. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Just after attack number 15 in another article in the Sacramento Bee, it was mentioned that the East Area Rapist had never attacked a man and a woman at home together. Oh. Guess who was the target of attack number 16 a few weeks later? A man and a woman living together. That was Bob and Gay Hardwick. And you can hear their story if you watch that HBO documentary. Yeah, it's a terrifying story. Titled, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. They tell their story. And again, same MO, same script, same guy. Mm -hmm. D'Angelo calms the victims by claiming, again through clenched teeth, that he only wants money and then he'll be gone. So they stop fighting. They think, let's just get him out of the house and we'll be okay. He has the woman tie up the man with shoelaces that he brings. Then D'Angelo ties up the woman. And then he stacks plates and cups on the man's back and tells him he will kill everyone in the house if he hears those plates rattle. So he cannot move. He's stuck there with the plates and the cups on him. And then D'Angelo moves the woman to another room. He unties her ankles and repeatedly sexually assaults her. So the man can just lay there and hear everything that's going on. That's correct. Uh, D'Angelo is in and out of the rest of the house in between these attacks. He tosses drawers, grabs trinkets and jewelry, and snacks on whatever he finds in the kitchen. D'Angelo typically stretched these attacks out to a couple of hours, several times. Victims tell this story. The house would get quiet, and they would start trying to untie themselves and move around, only to hear from a corner of, of the darkened room, don't move or I'll kill you. God, he's just sitting there. Waiting for them to try to escape. God, what a, what a douchebag. And he says he's going to kill you, but he hasn't followed through on this threat, not yet. Police are concerned, though, that he's becoming more aggressive as the attacks continue. They figure it's only a matter of time before the East Area Rapist commits murder. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, all the way through the end of 1976, and for all of 77, D'Angelo is committing an average of about two attacks every month. That's over average. Some week, some months more uh, dense than others. But if you spread it out over the whole year, it's about two a month. In mid-May of 77, D'Angelo attacked for the 22nd time in the home of a couple who had attended one of those Sheriff's Department community meetings several weeks earlier. This man stood up 
berated the police for not doing more and called out the men who had already been victims of the East Area Rapist. There's no way I would let this happen to me, he said, in front of a packed out community center. Mm. I wouldn't just lie there with plates on my back. I'd do something about it. He wouldn't get me. That challenge was soon accepted. Because oh guess who authorities believe was one of the hundreds of people in that community center that night? Joseph James D'Angelo. Oh, yeah. A few weeks later, the East Area Rapist put plates on that man's back. And did he do anything? He didn't do anything. No, because... He listened while his wife was raped in the next room. Yeah. Because he couldn't do anything. It's easy to... And, 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 you know, the same with us. It's easy to sit here and speculate and say what you would do, what you would not do, you know, be bold until you're faced with something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that month, exactly. May of 77, there were five attacks that month, some months more than others. So there were five in May. But then there wasn't another attack for almost four months. Hmm. And there's some speculation that D'Angelo hurt himself escaping because he used the drainage ditches and the canals and some of them are steep and it's dark. So maybe he slipped and fell and maybe he did twisted an ankle. So we don't hear from him again. And, and you know what? While he's doing all that, that tiny penis is just flying. Yeah. I mean, no pants like hidden anywhere or anything. He's just I'm assuming out that somewhere. I don't know where he puts his pants, but I mean, if you've got to run quickly from something like that, I mean, guess what? You're not You're putting on pants, yeah. Flop it all the way back to your car or wherever for you are. Real. Yeah. Whatever the reason for that lull in the summer of 77, D'Angelo next struck on September the 6th of that year, 50 miles south of Sacramento in the city of Stockton. Not that the city matters, but he's moving around. A little heat on him, so he moves somewhere else. Now, remember, again, like we said, in the 70s, police departments were very territorial. None of them shared information. Reports of these crimes only made it as far as the circulation map of the local newspaper or the local radio station. So Stockton has no idea who the East Area Rapist was or that he existed, and they certainly have no clue on how to deal with it. Such a different time. Yeah. By the end of 77... There had been six more attacks in total, some in Stockton, some in Sacramento. Joseph D'Angelo starts off his new year in 1978 by making a phone call to his very first victim from two years earlier. He did not wish her happy new year on January the 2nd. Katie found the audio for us. Here it is. One month after placing that phone call in February 1978, D'Angelo was prowling a Sacramento neighborhood looking for his next victim. And that was another familiar note about the attacks, a sudden uptick in the number of reports of prowlers in the neighborhood. D'Angelo didn't choose his victims on a whim. He stalked them first. But on this particular night, D'Angelo was caught off guard and was seen without his ski mask by a couple out walking their dog. So he shot and killed them both. Oh, God. Was he pantsless at this time? No, he's just walking around looking for a place to go pantsless later. Okay, got you. Uh, pantsless time's not until like yeah. 2 a.m. Yeah. Gotcha. yeah, this is like 7 o'clock at night. He shoots them both in 
a neighbor's backyard. In the seconds after the murders, a couple of other people saw D'Angelo while he was making his escape on foot, and police finally got their first eyewitness description of the East Area Rapist. The two victims, they were newlyweds in their 20s. Mm. They had been married for 18 months. Katie Major had turned 29 four days before she died in a pool of her own blood. Her husband, Brian, was in the military, stationed at nearby Mather Air Force Base. He died trying to do the right thing, chasing down a prowler. Yes. According to the investigation that followed, Brian had D'Angelo by the leg as he tried to climb a fence and escape. And that's when D'Angelo, faced with imminent capture, pulled his handgun and shot Brian dead. D'Angelo then retraced his steps, ran down Katie, who was running for her life, but tripped over a flower bed, and he shot her dead as well. There were 13 confirmed East Area rapist attacks in 1978 for a total of 43 sexual assaults by the end of the year. A few of the victims were defiant while they were being assaulted, but most were compliant. All of them were terrified, frightened for their lives. All of them thought they were laying in their graves as Joseph D'Angelo towered over them, waving his knife and his tiny penis, growling through clenched teeth, don't look at me, don't move, or I will kill you. Don't look at me. He says, don't look at me. That was another thing, don't look at me. That was the flashlight. It was to keep, boom, your irises dilate, your pupils mm-hmm. dilate. You can't see in the dark. Gosh. Even though, and maybe it was those piercing blue eyes that you mentioned earlier that was one of the reasons why he wanted to, to blind distinct. them. Mm-hmm. Very distinct. Mm-hmm. What a coward. So the murders of Brian and Katie at Majeure brought a lot of heat into Sacramento and on D'Angelo. The cops began ignoring their overtime budgets. The smarter detectives on the case in the various jurisdictions began learning to work together, if only slightly, grudgingly. The East Area Rapist was moving from one county to another at this point. And remember, D'Angelo's still a cop. He heard the water cooler talk. Mm -hmm. He knew he was in more danger than ever of being caught. By July of 78, the Sacramento Bee is covering the story every day. In those pages, you read two things repeated over and over. Number one, the various police departments were finally starting to communicate with each other. And number two, no clues, no leads, no idea. We are still waiting on him to make a mistake, said the Sacramento Police Chief to the Sacramento Bee on July the 10th, 1978. And D'Angelo's reading that newspaper. Mm -hmm. He knew the heat was on. He knew they didn't know who he was. But he still took a few months off over the holidays of 78 no one heard from the east area rapist for three months d'angelo's first attack in 1979 was on the day of my ninth birthday march the 20th like i didn't fucking hate this guy already (laughs) right he committed a total of six sexual assaults by the middle of that summer the last of which did not go as planned on july the 6th 1979 at 4 a.m a 32 year old man a light sleeper awoke to see D'Angelo standing at the foot of his bed, just pulling down his ski mask. The man and his 33-year-old wife had actually talked about what they would do if they ever found themselves in the room with the East Area Rapist. They had a plan and they put it into action. When they saw D'Angelo standing at the foot of their bed, the man charged the attacker, screaming obscenities, shielding the way for his wife to run out the door and out of the house. 
Okay. So they were ready. They were like, so the man charges him, screaming yes. at him. And there's this quick like, movement. Ah, yeah. Yeah, there's this quick movement in the dark. D'Angelo doesn't have his gun or his flashlight he ain't ready. quite ready yeah. yet. So he kind of panics too. And then and the wife that, darts. The wife's out and then the man's out. And then they dart. And he's just like, what the heck just happened? They got away. Ha! Awesome. And D'Angelo runs off into the dark, and now we have another sort of general vague description. It's in the dark. His mask is halfway down, whatever. Mm-hmm. But we've got somebody else who has seen the East Area Rapist. Mm-hmm. Is this one we know at the point that his hair is, is blonde, like a sandy blonde hair, or did we know that before? I think that would have been uh, when the Majors were killed. Okay. Because there was a man on the sidewalk who saw him running, and he stopped and froze for just a second, and the guy got a really good look at him. One of the first descriptions or one of the first uh, composite sketches that you will see is from that kid. I think he was 17 at the time and an art student, by the way. Okay, so we'll so put that. So he helped the police. We'll put that on sure. Instagram yes, for everybody I, to see. I have seen those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he helped them compile that first sketch. Okay. But they're they're very different. You look at those three sketches and how are, are these three the we'll same put, guy? We'll put all three of them yeah. up on the social media and let you look yourself. at it. Yeah. The hair's parted different in every one of them. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's very hard to draw And you think about how these people are seeing this man. It's it's very difficult to yeah. get get it right. Yeah. And and thankfully those two people got away. Unfortunately, that couple's good fortune would be bad news for everyone else who found themselves blinded by Joseph D'Angelo's flashlight in the middle of the night. It had become too risky, he decided, to leave anyone alive, anyone who might be able to identify him later on. Three months later, in October 1979, the East Area Rapist would no longer be satisfied with burglary, terror, and rape, so he shifted his focus south, onto murder, and into Southern California, by the time of his last attack in May of 1986, D'Angelo had killed 10 people. Mm-hmm. And we will tell you about that next week in part two of the Golden State Killer. Man, Scott, that is, that's a, that's a cliffhanger right there. Fantastic job this week. This case, a lot of people know this case. There's been umpteen documentaries, podcasts. You did a phenomenal job. Thank yes. you so much. Well, I knew a lot about this, yeah. and I still learned something new today. Thank you very well, much. Well, I did too. I learned from you it's guys really both. And, and next week, we will tell you more about who Joseph James D'Angelo was and is yep. and how they finally ended up catching him. And it's going to be a great hook into our third part of this episode when Katie has found sort of an Alabama connection to this whole thing. Yeah, we do. It's very excited about that. Yep. Alabama tie. We I'm, bring it home. And yep. I wait until the music starts to give things away down the road because I know <laughs> Kelly hates it and she's just close enough to stab me with a pencil. <laughs> and it can't be cut out at this point. Not no. at this yep. point. Stuck. We're stuck with it. Hey, yes. don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Go to our website, truecrimeoneasystreet.com. You can learn everything you want to know about us and then some. Mm -hmm. And you can get connections to all of those social media platforms. You can find out about merch. Thanks to everyone who came by and saw us at the Fall Fest. We had a great time getting to see all of you. Yeah, great bunch of fans. We had, you know, about 100 chances to draw for them. So it was a good time. Congratulations again to our winner, Miss Asa Sinclair. Good night, everybody.